In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. Uh, Let's take a moment in prayer as we uh, reflect on God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking words of life and truth to us. Would you give us open hearts? Uh, Would you encourage us and strengthen us and help us to grow more like Jesus as we reflect on your word together today? Amen. Uh, Many of you will know that today marks the end of NADOC week, uh, a week for celebrating Indigenous culture and history, uh, a week with Christian roots, uh, which when you think about it, is somewhat ironic, given how complicit Christians have been in the destruction of Indigenous culture and history. Christianity came to these shores with the arrival of British ships in 1788, and the story of Christian mission to Aboriginal Australians has many sorry chapters. Even lots of well-meaning missions were little more than attempts to civilise and force Indigenous Australians into European cultural norms. We Christians ought to be ashamed of our part in the stolen generations. From today's perspective, it's very hard to distinguish Christian mission from the broader project of colonisation. And so the question we face as Christians in Australia today, meeting together on stolen land, is whether our faith is in fact good news for all people, universally, like we say, or whether it's simply a vehicle for one culture to exert pressure and control on another. Now that's, that's the charge, isn't it? The, the Christian mission is really just about cultural imperialism. That's an uncomfortable question for us, especially if, uh, like me, you're from a European background. Uh, For others of us, if your roots are not uh, European, perhaps your country of origin has similar questions to face. Perhaps your experience is different. Uh, Maybe your people received the gospel from uh, missionaries. I wonder what that was like in your context. Because this issue is bigger than just Australia. It has different kind of contours and uh, specific issues in each place. I'd like us to keep this question in mind this morning. Is Christian faith actually good news for people from different cultures? Or simply 
colonialism dressed up in religious robes. In our passage from Acts 6, uh, we see the first signs of cross-cultural tension in the burgeoning Christian community. Now, you remember if you've been with us uh, through this series in Acts, that cultural and linguistic diversity was baked into the church from the very beginning. Believers from different language groups and different regions all together at Pentecost. But now, some cracks start to appear. This young church community has faced external pressure and opposition from the authorities, like Mel referenced at the start. It's dealt with internal sin and deception. Now it faces something a little bit different. It faces grumbling, growing resentment at perceived injustice. And it's threatening to open a chasm and divide the church. And the the fault line that's the source for this chasm, it mirrors a key divide in Judaism. Uh, Let me explain. In in the first century AD, uh, we've got Jews living in Jerusalem uh, and the area around that we'd now call Israel and Palestine. Uh, Typically, they speak Aramaic or Hebrew. They hold closely to traditional customs. Uh, These are the Hebraic Jews that are referenced in our passage. Uh, On the other hand, there's a Jewish diaspora. They've Uh, spread around the eastern Mediterranean, and many of these Jews speak Greek, which is the more common language, and they've adopted more Greek customs and culture, so they're called Hellenistic Jews. Uh, Hellenist just means Greek. Uh, Some of us might have had experiences a little bit like this. Uh, Charlie was telling me that moving from uh, India, you can keep your religion, but your language and customs uh, begin to change. Perhaps your kids don't learn their mother tongue. They take on more Australian habits. If you go back to India, they get teased for their accent. Or maybe they can't handle the spice. Well, we know from funeral inscriptions that many Hellenistic Jews have moved back to Jerusalem. And so there, the more traditional Hebraic Jews... Uh, see these Hellenistic Jews as sellouts because they've adopted non-Jewish Greek customs and ideas that weren't authentically Jewish anymore, or so they appeared. And so there's some cultural conflict here. And this flows into their relationship in the church when many become Christians, both from those Hellenistic and Hebraic background. Uh, So we're going to look at that resentment that arises. Then we'll see the response and the result. Uh, Verse 1 says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now today, we'd, we'd probably call this discrimination, maybe unconscious bias. It seems that the Hellenistic widows are not being catered for when the church distributes food to those in need. Uh, We've seen earlier in Acts that Christians are selling property even to support those in need. And widows uh, were certainly people in need in that environment. They were amongst the most vulnerable in a society where women's economic welfare usually depended on their male relatives. Uh, Losing their husband made them particularly vulnerable. And yet we have lots of evidence that Christian faith was distinctly attractive 
uh, to the disenfranchised, the slaves and widows especially. And so it's not surprising that we find the early church busy caring for widows. But as the church grows, as it has been in the last few chapters, cracks start to appear. And more and more of the Hellenistic widows are falling through these cracks. Now this failure of love and mercy poses a big threat to, to the widows and their livelihood, but also to the church. If they don't provide for those in need in their community, is this really the place to find God's justice and mercy as they're preaching? They preach that God's grace is available to all. But if their actions don't show that love in practice, they betray that gospel. They preach that God transforms people through faith in Christ and gives new life in the gift of the Spirit. But if there's no evidence of that in, in terms of generous love and care for others, well, then outsiders will rightly ask, is there any truth to it? That question is just as valid today as then. Uh, when I was at high school, a few of us organised a trip away for a few days. Uh, we were so excited. But there was one person in the youth group that we, we just found really annoying. And so we deliberately didn't invite her. It was awful. We just excluded her. It's an awful thing to do. If we claim to follow Jesus, are we wholehearted in giving ourselves to him so that the world can see the difference that it makes? Are we so convicted in our heart that we're willing to let God transform us from the inside out? Because if we're not, then our Christianity will end up looking just like the culture around us, like we did. We won't recognize the sins of our culture for what they are or how God is calling us to change and be different. That's a big problem. Because we're, when we seek to share the gospel with people from another culture, if we do, uh, what we're going to be sharing is not a wholehearted faith in Jesus then, but a half-hearted allegiance mixed with this devotion to our own culture. And that's a recipe for imposing our own culture on others, not offering life in Christ. So the question here for the early church is whether the gospel of Jesus is primarily for Hebraic Jews with scraps for everyone else. And as we might ask in our context, is it for white Europeans alone? Or is it genuinely transcultural? Can you become a Christian from any cultural background? In the passage before us, are the Hellenistic Jews entitled to the same love and care or not? That's the resentment. Well, let's see the response in verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right of us, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Can you see here the approach of the apostles? They, they take the issue seriously uh, and they don't let it take over. It's important so they address it, 
But it's not so important that everything else needs to be dropped. They keep focused on preaching the word of God and they propose a solution to this issue. Now, I know in some circles this can be a bit controversial. Should the church focus on evangelism and and biblical teaching and the ministry of the word? Or should we focus on practical service and caring for people's needs? Right? And, and the you know, question for someone in my position, should I spend my time teaching God's word or giving food out on the streets? Well, what does the, the passage tell us? Uh, firstly, uh, I think we need to be aware as we look at the passage that the issue at stake here is not so much about serving uh, the wider community beyond the church. It's about caring for the widows among us in that Christian community. So this is a question between caring for the needs of others in the church and teaching the word of God. Secondly, the apostles we see here, second thing we learn from the passage, is that the apostles can't delegate teaching God's word. If they, as the leaders and the witnesses to Christ's death and resurrection, don't talk about it, if they don't teach and preach the word of God, then then who will? And this continues to be a foundational responsibility for church leaders. God's word is how he brings each of us to faith in Christ. God's word is how he gathers his church. It's how he grows us each to maturity in faith. If we as leaders in the church are not doing that ministry, what are we doing? Uh, So there's a a reminder here for for me and for Ali, uh, for John, but also for our small group leaders. If you're a small group leader or a children's ministry leader or youth leader, uh, ministry of the word is not negotiable for us. We've been entrusted with pastoral leadership for God's people and God's word is our primary tool for us to do that work. It's what is going to sustain and strengthen the church. So we mustn't neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. Uh, It's easy for us to think about other priorities. There are other important things to do too, caring for people in other ways, and that's good. We're not saying that's bad. But if we stop teaching people God's word, then we've lost focus. We drift away from what God is calling us to do. Thirdly, though, and to hold together with that, We also see that caring for the needs of one another is vital. We can't use the ministry of the word as an excuse uh, to then say that the needs of the widows don't matter. The the apostles actually use their position to propose a solution. They do delegate this responsibility because caring for each other's needs is actually uh, something we can all contribute to. All of us have different gifts that are useful here. Generosity, hospitality, service, kind words. It takes a church to care for every member. And I expect uh, actually that each of us in this room, myself included, are going to have seasons uh, when we're caring for others and other seasons where people are, are caring for us and perhaps seasons where we're doing a bit of both. If there are needs in your small group, you don't need to wait for your small group leader to do something about it. 
Someone who was unwell recently told me how much they appreciated that meals were brought round, people dropped things off. Uh, It wasn't something that I organised or even knew about until later. It was just some members of our church seeing a need and stepping up. And that's awesome. So yes, ministry of the word is non-negotiable. Ministry of serving those in need is also important. And we can see this from the qualifications that they expect for someone serving in this ministry. Uh, They don't just appoint anyone. They must be full of the spirit and wisdom. They, They want to see evidence of God at work in their life. Committed Christians with the wisdom to carry out this task well. Uh, It's also interesting, something that we might miss in translation a bit. It's interesting that all the names here are from a Greek background. These are not Hebrew names. They they seem to recognise the importance of of these leaders speaking the language uh, for this ministry. I must say I'm a bit intrigued then that they give this responsibility to seven men. Uh, It's quite specific. They appoint seven men. Why why don't they appoint any women to this role? Especially as it's about caring for the needs of widows. Uh, The short answer is I'm not sure. I wonder if there are cultural factors at work here that make it appropriate for men to have this responsibility uh, that would scandalise people, but I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. I don't know. Either way, it seems that this proposal is accepted by the whole community And they commission these seven men to take up their task. So how does it go? What's the result? There's a famous quote that says, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You might have heard it before. It was written by Tertullian around 200 AD. uh, But clearly Tertullian didn't have this passage in mind. uh, Because this passage would suggest, like Jesus does in the parable of the sower, But it's actually the word of God that is the seed of the church. Look at how our passage is beautifully bookended, front and end, by a focus on the word of God. At the end of chapter 5, in verse 42, it says, They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That was the end of last week's passage, teaching about Jesus. And so in verse 1 of our passage, the number of disciples was increasing teaching an increasing number of disciples. And now in verse 7, we read at the end of our passage, the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Same combination of the word of God teaching about Jesus and people coming to faith. And so we see that as the needs of these Hellenistic widows are addressed and the apostles continue to preach the word of God, God's word spreads, people are converted, and God's kingdom grows. The word of God is the seed of the church. Where God's word is preached and taught, the church grows. And even priests, who presumably were the most invested in the sacrificial system around the temple, even they are turning and trusting the Lord Jesus and his once and forever sacrifice for them. The, the result is a resounding success. So let's come back to that original question I started with. Is Christianity then just a cover for colonialism? Do, do you have to become like me 
if you're going to become a Christian before you can follow Jesus. And I think from this passage we can say no if, if Christian mission is focused on preaching the word of God. Because God's word is not about me and my culture. It, it critiques my culture and every culture. If Christian mission is about something else, like civilising or teaching our way of doing things or, or how to be good, well then yes, it can be a cover for colonialism, but it won't be a Christian mission anymore. But if we focus on opening God's word and, and helping people meet Jesus who died for sinners, if we allow others to hear it or read it in their own language and see for themselves what Christ has done, well, then they'll actually hear God speaking to them, not through me particularly, but directly through his word. And they're going to discover things that I would never see. And God will grow his church. I was sitting in a linguistic subject at uni many years ago. Uh, the lecturer was talking about indigenous languages in Australia and Rather sheepishly, she admitted that much of the work that has been done on these languages in terms of writing them down and codifying them, uh, to record them and preserve them, has, has not been done by university academics or, or by activists, uh, but by Christian missionaries. And it continues today. I did a little bit of research during the week. Dieri was the first language to have a complete New Testament in 1897. And as recently as 2019, portions were completed in another language, in Duwaya, and their projects ongoing. Uncle Sam Diner is a Nyunga elder and a minister, a survivor of the stolen generations as well. As he puts it, he says, it was Christian missionaries, amongst others, who, who challenged racist policies because they believed all people were equal and created in the image of God. And still today, Christian missionaries know the importance of a person's heart language. Uh, they want people to hear God's word in their own tongue. And so they work with native speakers to learn and to record the language and ultimately to help people to translate the scriptures and other resources. And they do this because they know that the lordship of Christ is good news for all people in all places at all times. We Christians haven't always reflected that. And we do need to repent of that. We, we need to repent because we actually get in the way of people hearing God's word. Because Jesus' death and resurrection offer hope. No, no matter what your cultural or linguistic background, Christianity is not a Western religion and we do a disservice when we try to pretend that it is. Rather, as we've seen through Acts, it starts in the Middle East. It's preached in Asia and Africa as early as it is in Europe. God's plan is for the good news of Jesus Christ to be shared with all people of all nations. And so I wonder who amongst us here is calling to give ourselves to the work of the gospel. Our Lord Jesus gave his life so that we could know how much God loves us. So that we could bring uh, our sin and be forgiven and set free. 
in each generation, God raises up men and women who will not be distracted, who will hold loosely to our own culture, but who will preach and teach his word that others might know his enormous grace. Is God calling you to consider giving your life to this ministry of the word and prayer? Would you consider it? I'd love to get a coffee and talk with you about what that would look like. And even if that's not for you, will you pray for others to be raised up and equipped? And will you also support those in need in our community? Would you help us to better put God's word into practice by showing this love and generous hospitality? As we finish, let's pray that God's word would spread, that he would bring many to faith in the Lord Jesus as we faithfully teach his word and love one another in action. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus' death and resurrection is not just for one cultural group, but for people of every language and tribe and tongue. I thank you for raising up uh, people to preach your word in each generation and to hold out that message of life. Lord, would you continue to do that in our day? Uh, Would you stir our hearts if that's something you're calling us to, Lord? And Father, would you help us as a church to faithfully continue this ministry of the word and prayer? and also to faithfully continue loving those in need and caring uh, for those uh, who need help in different ways. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.